0: Well, we've made it to the end of the first day, or getting close to making it to the end of the first day. And it maybe is surprising how challenging and maybe at times exhausting, confusing, and maybe also at times... Uh, seemingly insignificant or what's this all about anyway, it's like we can be all over the map in terms of this practice of being real, being intimate, being with this embodied experience, this activity of the body and the mind. Doesn't it seem strange that that it's even hard to remember, like during the course of the day, to remember, what, what am I doing? Oh yeah, I'm just supposed to be willing to acknowledge, be willing to connect with what's already here. So it's not like I need a different experience. I just need to be willing to acknowledge, to connect with what's being known, To use the, primarily to use the experience of the body as a place to reconnect. Oh yeah, it's like this now. There's so many places in the Buddha's teachings where he emphasizes the power, the transforming power of just that. Here's a couple passages. Whoever pervades the great ocean with one's awareness encompasses whatever rivulets flow down into the ocean. In the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. When one thing is practiced and pursued, The body is calmed, the mind is calmed, thinking and evaluating are stilled, and all qualities on the side of clear knowing go to the culmination of their development. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. When one thing is practiced and pursued, ignorance is abandoned, clear knowing arises The conceit, I AM, is abandoned. Latent tendencies are uprooted. Fetters are abandoned. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. Those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the the deathless. The deathless is a term used in early Buddhism. basically synonymous with awakening, liberation of the heart. Those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the deathless. Those who taste mindfulness of the body taste the deathless. Those who are heedless of mindfulness of the body are heedless of the deathless. Those who comprehend mindfulness of the body comprehend the deathless. So that's a pretty powerful encouragement to at least be willing to check out. Okay, <clears throat> mindfulness immersed in the body, <coughs> cultivating the heart, the mind that's willing, that's interested, that values this embodied moment, this activity of body-mind. It's really about acknowledging the heart, it's really this (coughs) integration, and it's this being real, this balanced and integrated, connected place actually that gives our heart a lot of immunity. The way the Buddha talks about this is, He describes that for those folks in moments who are not mindful of the body, not intimate with this experience of embodiment, not willing to be open or not capable of being open in that moment for whatever reason, that that we're susceptible to being pushed around, tormented by Mara. Some of you know that. Mara is sort of the personification of our neurotic tendencies of mind, sort of the force of greed and hate and distraction and delusion. And the image the Buddha uses <clears throat> that you know to kind of convey how our not so wholesome habit energies can really have the run of the house is in the same way as somebody taking a, a heavy stone and throwing it into a place where there's some soft clay, that heavy stone is going to make a real impression in the soft clay. Right? It's going to sink in. So in the same way the tendencies, the unwholesome tendencies of our mind, they're going to make a big impression when they get triggered or for whatever reason when they arise, if in those moments the mind isn't intimate with the body, isn't connecting with this experience of embodiment, we're really pushed off balance. There's an impression left. See, we can't get rid of those conditioned tendencies to be afraid, to be greedy, to be judgmental, Those tendencies, condition, condition habits, they have the momentum that they have already, right? So we have to be skillful with a heart, a mind that we have, you know, conditioned in the way that it's conditioned, not perfectly conditioned, right? A lot of not so wholesome, not so helpful habits of mind. And so they're going to get triggered, these habits. And it's just a question of when the habits of mind, the relatively unskillful habits of mind, are triggered, whether that's in the context of being embodied, being open and integrated and aware of the body, aware of the heart, aware of the mind, or not, you know, unaware, lost in thought. And so when we're not in that more stable, grounded, real place, it's like this now. This life, this activity of body and mind, quality of the heart, it's like this now. And that ongoingness of connecting and connecting and connecting. It's like, uh, it's funny because initially, it feels very wild to be in that connected place. Because it's always changing. It doesn't it's like we connect, but in the next moment it's it's a different moment to connect with. So it doesn't necessarily feel like we're going to be invulnerable. But because of that integration, because of that intimacy, when patterns, unwholesome qualities of mind get triggered The quality of the presence, you know, it's like the rivulets, the the kind of rootedness with our experience, with that embodied experience. One way to think of it is like we're just, the heart's not surprised by what gets triggered. Oh, yeah, that's just anger. Oh, yeah, that's just feeling shame. Oh, yeah, that's just a lot of doubt. Oh yeah that's just feeling dead to the world oh yeah that's just this that's just that that it's like these patterns like in the context of embodiment in the context of being intimate with the totality of the body and the mind by just that willingness to connect the mind just isn't as surprised or thrown off balance And the image the Buddha uses then, instead of a heavy stone being lobbed into a bunch of soft clay, he says it's like somebody throwing a a ball of yarn out of a a solid wooden door. It's not going to make an impression. right? So different patterns, because they're there, these tendencies, Some skillful, a lot not so skillful. They're going to get triggered, but it's okay that they get triggered. Actually, it's useful that they get triggered when we're in that more intimate, grounded, embodied place. It's like that's how they, those tendencies gradually get uprooted is they get triggered in the context of being, in the context of mindfulness immersed in the body. And it's sort of like they're seen in that integrated way. Instead of immediately the, the quality that's gotten triggered is, feels personal, you know, and we personally act out the anger or the doubt or whatever the not so skillful habit might be. So this is something for us to check out, you know, when we have a string of moments where we're pretty feels pretty intimate, pretty present, embodied, not idealistic, not in the thought of being a good yogi, right but just just like there with some consistency for some number of moments. so like, notice that the mind doesn't have a problem with being an imperfect human being and doesn't have as much of a problem being around a bunch of other imperfect human beings in fact the character uh, those moments are characterized by like not having a problem with the world not having a problem with the body not having a problem with the mind not having a problem with anything no problem that's really like the one thing that characterizes those moments is like, yeah, it's workable. This embodied experience, this experience of the body and mind, this quality of the heart, yeah, it's workable. It doesn't mean it's what we would choose. It doesn't mean it's like pleasant even. It just means, you know, it's... (laughs) The amazing. What makes nature, whether it's the nature of my mind or the nature of my body or the nature of my particular circumstance that I'm dealing with, what makes something unworkable isn't the thing itself. Although it always seems, that's the story we tell, this moment is unworkable because I have a lot of doubt, or this moment's unworkable because I have a lot of knee pain, or this moment's unworkable because there's a real cold draft coming from the doors behind me. Or because, you know, you could fill in the blank. But what makes the moment unworkable and then the cause for us justifying getting tight in one way or another, which just makes it worse, makes things worse, the cause is the absence, the not being immersed in the body. The body's really the gateway to dhamma, dharma, the way it is, right? I mean, what most completely defines our karmic situation is being embodied. So that's why it's our doorway back. This life is characterized by being the mind, the heart, tethered to this body, grounded in, you know, what we call the material reality these circumstances. And our body is in a way the sort of this lifetime's receptacle to all the unfinished business, maybe previous lifetimes too, who knows. It's all here. So to the degree we're unwilling To be here, we just can't do any good work. We're just digging the hole deeper, causing, setting up more problems. I mean, we need to be forgiving because, truthfully, it's not our habit to be consistently intimate with our lived reality of body. (coughs) But we really want to take this time to fall in love with that to really, really trust it. In the same way we trust relationships like with our dogs or cats, hopefully with our partners and dear friends and those of you with kids and nieces and nephews and whatever, you know, we do have sometimes, hopefully, <clears throat> these so-called healthy relationships with other beings where we take the whole package Right, we're not like I love this about you, but this other stuff I completely reject, and um, you know our relationship will never be whole until you fix those places that I've completely rejected. We don't, you know, that's not considered a healthy relationship. A healthy relationship is where we've learned to really see the person, hear the person, feel the person. We're not afraid of the whole package. We're not pretending, we're not like in denial about who they are. This is an unusual, you know, this is not our usual relationship. But it's a healthy relationship, and we need this not just with certain relationships in certain moments, we need it in particular with our body, and then from our body just in more subtle ways, the sort of layers of the conditioning of our heart and mind and the world, and ultimately the whole world, as it's manifesting in this moment, in each moment. And the Buddha, like you know, I read, all good things come from that. I mean, just to revisit what I read at the beginning, whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing, they... Arise, right? It's like the fertile ground for developing all of the beautiful qualities that we need to live a good life, to cultivate wisdom and love, and to be a good human being, an engaged human being. We'll learn with the body. And then the next one is about know that proliferating mind, the neurotic proliferating mind comes to stillness becomes peaceful. Because so much of our neurotic mental proliferation is an attempt to avoid landing in the experience of embodiment. We don't trust it most of the time. We've spent too much time away from it that it seems untrustworthy. And often, coming back into it, it's initially especially we feel what we don't want to feel or we feel what we think will kill us, like if I feel that it will kill me, or cause some harm. Really, it's sort of funny to say it out loud, that it, it really... I mean, it sounds crazy, really, to think that just feeling what's already here being felt, just clearly acknowledge what's here being felt, would be dangerous. So, it's not. And then the third thing, just to repeat, it, ad, uh, it uproots the conceit I am, right? Latent tendencies are uprooted. This is how we actually transform the heart. In a way, it's, some of you know from yoga classes, the term tapas means, I think it it might literally in Sanskrit mean fire, but it usually is used to... Um, be like a spiritual fire. We're burning away the tendency. So by being in this embodied experience, this fearless um, willingness to connect in an honest way with what's moving or what feels numb, right? It's not always moving. It's sometimes it heart, body, mind feels flat or numb or packed in styrofoam. It's not an uncommon Experience on retreat, you know, as we start to feel into the more subtle layers of what's here and now in this experience. And it's like the not reacting to what's being felt and the learning how to bring a quality of love, kindness, and curiosity over and over again, it really burns away the all those tendencies to sort of deflect into endless thinking, idealism, worrying, comparing, you know, the staying in our thoughts about the moment, about our life. And then the last thing here The Buddha says, the taste of mindfulness of the body is the taste of the deathless, right? That the intimacy any moment will do, right? Any moment of opening, connecting, a more honest, it's like that is literally a moment of not running away. So that there is right in that moment the freedom from running away. The heart is free of having to run away free of having to make the effort to be distracted, make the effort to be in denial, make the effort to be disconnected. It initially feels like it's a lot of work to connect, but actually, over time, we'll start getting glimpses that the real work, the real stressful work, is staying disconnected, staying in our heads, we say, right? lost in thought, that hunger that fuels our endless speculation and imaginings and fantasizing and fear-mongering in our mind, that is exhausting and stressful The kind of keep up the dramas that we mostly live inside of. In another passage here, this is a fun one, when mindfulness of the body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, established, consolidated, and well undertaken, so probably by Saturday afternoon we should be here, (laughs) these ten benefits may be expected. What ten? So here's a few of them. One becomes a conqueror of discontent and delight. Right? So we're not thrown around by discontent or delight. Right? It's sort of like when it's <clears throat> the embodied experience, especially when we get some momentum. It really has can have the feeling of of uh, an ocean. It feels really vast. or Really, it's a funny word to use, but solid, stable, right? It has a kind of depth, just being intimate in that way. And the the largeness of the experience, the subtleness and stability of the experience, makes the mind less vulnerable or less um, pushed around by dis. Content and delight by pain and pleasure. I mean, things are still showing up as painful or pleasurable all the time, but the mind is orienting around a a different kind, it's sort of a different um, realm of pleasure, the pleasure of being intimate. And so the ordinary pleasures and pains that just visit human beings all the time are just less relevant. So we're less pushed around. So that's one of the benefits. One becomes the conqueror, no longer pushed around by pain and pleasure, you could say. Another one is one becomes a conqueror of fear and dread. Because everything that we'd be afraid of is here. You know, it's, it's like already happened to us. And it's already been laid down in a way in the body all the fears all the you know all the times that we had a moment of panic whether the terrible thing happened or not but just that thought you know and it lives on in the body so when the more real more integrated more loving and and curious presence with life with embodiment it's harder to be surprised it's, it's kind of a very sober way to move through life. Because in a way, all the old wounds were kind of hanging out with them. we are sort of there. The shame, the terror, fear of death. It's like, I mean, whatever we've imagined is reverberating here. So to the degree we're really in that more intimate place. That's why that um, stability or solidness is a good word. It really has a sense of, of invulnerability. One bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst and mosquitoes, wind, the sun... And creeping things. Remember a lot of the nuns and monks um, just practiced under trees, you know, and they didn't even have the fancy mosquito nets that monks and nuns have these days, The called glots, that just they sit under in the tropics. They would just find a place under a tree so that the leaves of the tree would shed the rain to some degree. And uh There on the forest floor, you know, there would be creeping things. I don't know if you've been in the tropics, but there are big creeping things. (laughs) (laughs) Poisonous centipedes and scorpions and snakes and who knows what else? Spiders, of course. So we have a pretty nice... (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes we get ants in here. I don't know, with the new floor, maybe we won't have ants. There's a couple more here. One endures ill-spoken words and bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. And the last one I have here. One here and now enters upon and abides in the, in the deliverance of the heart-mind, right, one wakes up. And <clears throat> waking up really means, you know, the the real definition of waking up, because we can turn that into a story, into a, a mental idea. So it's really nice, right, just like in the service of embodiment, in the service of really understanding what the Buddha is pointing to, right? It's not a really beautiful idea of awakening, because our heart can be moved by beautiful ideas, lofty ideas. But they ultimately ring hollow, right? They ultimately betray, because no matter how moving ideas are, it leaves us hungry, doesn't really (coughs) resolve the heart's pain, the heart's anxiety. So the real release or, you know, here the deliverance of the heart. One abides in the deliverance of the heart. It's that, it's realizing the integration to the nth degree, right? In early Buddhism, the way it's talked about is the heart that's peaceful. With conditions, with all the conditions that are here and now. So that there's no, um, distortion, there's no resistance. The heart is completely, and the, and the only way to realize the heart that's not resisting, that's not afraid, is to be really intimate. Because if I'm, to whatever degree I'm unaware, disconnected, I'm vulnerable to what I'm unaware of. I'm vulnerable to being surprised by what I'm not awake to. But when I'm really awake, willing to be intimate, embodied, present, there's something about that totality, the the intimacy with the totality of the moment. No, do- no doors and windows shut everything wide open, there's something about that honesty that is this awakening that the Buddha points to, a heart that's peaceful with conditions, a heart that's not afraid of conditions, a heart that's not in a adversarial relationship or a greedy relationship with conditions, with the world. So that's why we often talk about emptiness in Buddhism, because the distortions cease to exist, the resistance ceases to exist, problems cease to exist. So we say at the moment that it's empty of resistance, empty of there being a problem, empty of any distortions, reverberations in the heart, the heart feels like the universe so this is what the buddha you know he invites us to explore this to see what can be found and the body's always waiting we don't need a different experience than the one that we have and it's interesting how you know probably all of us have had moments in our life where we, just our way of relating, our way of connecting became very powerful and pure and real and honest and undistorted. I mean, just think about certain moments. I mean, it can be even around something silly, seemingly silly, like you picked up a piece of bark you know, you're on a hike, and you pe- picked up a piece of bark, and you just, you saw it in a way that you'd never seen it before, you know? And it was just like, the mind was really there. There wasn't any construction of separation, just uh like, how amazing. But not confused by the beauty, not like proliferating, oh, I'm going to become the world expert on bark, or I'm going to be like the Birchwood Cafe and have a, you know, glue bark on one of the walls in my living room, and people will talk about it forever, and I'll become special. <laughs> Shelley tells the story of Bahia, uh, character from the time of the Buddha and he was for some strange reasons someone who wore bark (laughs) and the local people were quite impressed thinking he must be special because he wears bark (laughs) (laughs) but we just have these little moments you just see a little bug you know I've had moments of you know seeing a little bug in you know, a winter, winter window, you know, but there's some sunshine in the winter on, on the window. And so the fly kind of comes to life. Probably was dormant for a couple of months, but all of a sudden there's enough heat in that, you know, they're trapped like between panes of glass and it's like buzzing around in the middle of the winter. You know, just that can really break your heart. Just the uh, opening to that moment of existence. Or another time, once I was a young man and uh, visiting <clears throat> my cousins and uncle and aunt, who uh, run the or did at the time ran the ranch that my dad grew up on in Montana, and uh, yeah, I was just there for a few days after sort of a big family gathering and just helping out a little bit. And they wanted to bring one of the cows in from the range. And uh, because they were going to milk it just for their own use. It wasn't a dairy farm, but uh, the mother had given birth. And so, uh, just like recently, probably a day or so, and so um, my cousin was driving the pickup, and I was in the back of the pickup holding the calf, so the mother cow would follow. And it was several miles into where the barn was, from the fields where the cattle were. And, you know, it's just amazing holding a baby animal and uh, to see the calf struggle, you know, thinking it's, you know, fighting for its life, and then it would be exhausted for, you know, three, five minutes. And then it would struggle again for a minute or so, and then relax. And the mother just kind of plodding along behind with the big milk sack and not able to move that quickly. So it took a while, and just that, you know, like, my mind, my heart had no problem like being there completely undistracted. You know, in a way, it's it's like I immediately noticed when I started to think and realized I didn't really have any way to put words on this experience. And, and yet, you know, the mind wants to, like capture it in some way, and realizes it's not helpful, and then just in the moment again. Now, the, the, the reason I bring these examples up is, like, what is it about this experience with this body, this moment, with eyes that see and ears that hear and nose that smells and tongue that tastes and skin that feels and heart that is moved? so many different kinds of ways. Why does this feel, relatively speaking, so unimportant when other moments can feel so worthy of presence? And I really thought about, contemplated this question, and and it really seems that You know, there's a very pervasive, arrogant certainty that this isn't it, or this isn't relevant, this moment of life. But we have a tender body. I mean, we just can imagine ourselves without clothes on. We're not that different than that calf, you know, the sort of glimmering skin, you know, it's not very thick. And the rippling muscles and the, you know, just the plumbing that's just a little bit below the surface and the amazing nervous system. And, I mean, but, you know, we don't, we don't have, like when's the last time, we had that sense of awe for the body, you know, and that kind of undying respect and like wonder of you know, what the body does that we can stand up after sitting for 45 minutes. I don't know about you, but it's always those first few seconds, like I think think I'll make it. So that may be a useful way to come back, you know, when you're starting over, to just open your mind, because we're going to tell a story one way or another, but mostly we tell a very boring story about the moment, who, who we are, what's happening. So, so how about you know a different kind of story that invites intimacy, invites uh, kind of more profound respect for embodiment, for the sort of coursing life and the vulnerability, the exposure. The uncertainty, vulnerability that we're right in the middle of, emotionally, physically. We wouldn't survive very long outside. I mean, I mean that that's sort of interesting, you know, how dependent we are on the insulation, you know, the walls around us, It's just our, the tenuousness of our own emotional balance. I mean, one of the things we see on retreat is how we're just all over the place. I think one of the <laughs> real telltale signs, and maybe this is more for people who identify with the more masculine qualities of humans, but, you know, just like being moved to tears more and more often, just or finding things funny more and more often, we just being touched. That, I think, goes hand in hand with living in with this presence, this embodiment, embodied presence. It's like the first to cry, the first to laugh, the first to sort of have the mind blown, the first to see something as just the next thing. It's like the whole range. Because a lot of times... You know, it, it can seem the story we'll tell ourselves is that we're sacrificing meaning and drama and we're just going to have the same old, same old. Oh, just this being known. And it just, it feels like, why would I make that deal? You know, I don't, I'll take the drama and the pain that comes with it. But I think it's really not that way. It's very rich. But we're just not adding adding anything. We're learning not to add anything to the richness because it takes us away from the richness. You know, feeling responsible to have a personal reaction, feeling responsible to have a personal story for what's happening to me, and whether I like it and whether I don't like it, takes us away from the sort of richness of life, of embodiment. So we can um, get good at noticing how our distractedness and you know the different ways that we fill up the space at the moment with or thoughts about things, you can get really good at naming, noticing, acknowledging the delusion that's operating. It's almost like learning to recognize the different tapes that the mind plays because they're familiar, and because they're familiar, there's a certain sense of safety in them. And it's not about judging or self-hatred. It's just uh the step into embodiment, right? Because the body and the mind, they're reflecting each other. So if we're, you know, if my mind is invested in some story, whatever it is, you know, la-la-land fantasy or, you know, planning mind or comparing mind or, That, you know, that movement into the body, into embodiment, it means feeling what it feels like when the mind's been thinking these thoughts, when the mind's been circulating, spinning in this particular way, the body is mirroring that, and so it feels like this. So what's the feeling? Oh, it feels like this. So that acknowledgement of the tape, the delusion tape, You know, whether it's sort of sometimes for periods of time, we'll have some optimistic or various optimistic tapes going. Yeah, I'm going to get really good at meditation. I'm going to do yoga every morning. I'm going to start eating well. I'm going to stop talking to anybody. (laughs) And I'll become completely free. And we just, we can spend with that some version of that, like getting our act together some version of getting our act together. I mean just honestly, what percent of your waking day when you weren't asleep were you was the mind involved in some optimistic imaginings of like who you could become, the new you, the new and improved Mark, who's got, you know, whether it was like sometimes it's you were renovating or fixing or cleaning up something and then that will be so nice or changing how we are at work. But it has kind of the positive like, if I do this, then I'll get this reward. And it's hopeful. And then, you know, the other, you know, so maybe that was a third. And then, you know, then probably a third of the day was being lost in more negative kind of, mental activity, you know, feeling trapped, feeling like I'll never get this. Other people are getting it, but I'm not going to get this. I should have started when I was younger, you know, I shouldn't have drunk all that coffee or whatever it is, and our life, our body, the whole you know, the whole thing just feels like a ball and chain. So we have these different tapes, and we can get better at naming them, recognizing them, and then be willing, like, the, the, what well, can I feel what it feels like to have been thinking this? What's the feeling here? It's like, can I grow... Roots into this experience? Am I willing to be connected to the life I'm living? In the Dhammapada, one of the verses, this is a collection of verses from uh, the Buddhist teachings. Simply talking a lot doesn't maintain the Dhamma. Whoever although one's heard next to nothing, sees Dhamma through one's body, is not heedless of Dhamma, this person is one who maintains the Dhamma. But we don't need a lot of teachings. We just need to be willing to ask, like, well, what's the feeling here? Shelley talked about this, maybe it was in the Q&A session, but just the importance of feeling, like, how's the heart <coughs> doing, how's the body doing, what's, what's the feeling, what are the sensations and feeling that are here now? And don't be, be ready to acknowledge the what seems like an absence of feeling. Oh, there's no feeling here. Well, what's that like, to not be clearly feeling anything? Like maybe it's numb. What's that like? Is it safe to grow roots into this wild present moment, this changing, flowing, uncertain embodied experience here? Is it safe to relax and soften? What happens? Very famous uh, Thai teacher Ajahn Buddhadasa. He, he would give the this instruction, and it would be wise for us to really consider it. Don't do anything that takes you out of your body. That's sort of a interesting challenge, and invitation, and an encouragement for us this retreat. I just. I live as in as many moments as possible in a way where I'm not justifying being away from the body. I don't care what happens, I don't care what thoughts are there or emotions are moving, I'm just going to start over with the acknowledgement of the body. Oh yeah, there is this body here, this tender, vulnerable body, this body that reflects or reverberates, sort of mirrors everything that's happening around it and in it. It's like a sounding board. You'll feel in your body even what you sense is happening in those around you. Our body right now is also reflecting the winter, around us, and it's reflecting, you know, so much, so much richness, it's reflecting the whole world, all the injustice in the world is reflected in our body, and all the beauty and goodness in the world is also reflected in different ways, reverberating in different ways in our body. It really is our... Microcosm of the whole universe. The loving kindness that you practiced this afternoon, right? It's like that's such a powerful tool for being able to connect and sustain this interest, this willingness to be intimate with the body. It's like, uh, you know, a lot of us, we have pets, because they seem to be, most of the time, willing recipients of our attempt to practice unconditional love, or sometimes feeble attempts to practice unconditional love. But our body is, in a way, more willing to be a training ground, you know, for our our feeble attempts to show up in a wise and kind way. It's very, you know, it's, it's kind of not going to go anywhere. It's not going to reject us. Like in <laughs> our pets don't usually reject us. And our body definitely is not going to reject us. It doesn't have anywhere to go. It's like this marriage heart tethered to the body, body tether to the heart and mind, this is our karma for this life, as long as it lasts. So it's really our, like our working ground to develop all of the beautiful qualities that can be developed, can be developed best in relationship, in the relationship of the mind, the heart opening to the body, the heart in relationship with the body or the mind in relationship with the body. Let's just uh, sit for a little bit and uh, feel into the body, adjust your posture so you're comfortable enough, so it feels safe enough to come into the body. We don't presume to know how to meet the body, right? So we have an appropriate humility. We just know that our intention, our wholesome intention is to be real and to be intimate, to not cause harm. to have an authentic moment of relating. And so whatever you're beginning to discover, like you might be deeply exhausted and you might feel that in the body and mind. So why would we somehow think that's wrong? Well, this isn't the experience I was looking for. So It's really the question is more how to be intimate with this, how to include this, how to deeply appreciate that sometimes This is how it is, like this moment. Sometimes it's like this, and that's okay that it's like this. I'm ready to be done thinking that I know how the experience should be right now. So instead, I'm going to learn how to meet the body, meet this moment on its own terms. So we're really allowing life to present itself. Welcome life, so nice to connect. For movement, walking time. We'll come back at 9 o'clock and do a chant together and uh, sit for at least 15 minutes or so. let will see, Shelly will run the sit, see how long she'll have it. But if you feel up to it, try to come back for that chanting. It's a nice thing to do together and that shorter sit. Thanks for listening, everyone.